Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we sit now under your word, God, we ask that you would teach us. God, that you would help us to see how we are in subjection to you, that we need to see Jesus. We ask that we would see him today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, in your insert, there is an outline there if you want to follow along. I just want to begin by reminding us of the structure and the flow of Hebrews that we have mentioned a few times and will continue to bring to your attention as we go through this amazing letter. Uh, it is full of instructions and exhortations, and there is kind of this flowing from instruction into exhortation or warning and then back out into instruction again. And I, as I was thinking about this, I was kind of thinking about lakes and rivers flowing, uh, how they're all interconnected. I love looking at maps, uh, especially now with the fancy maps that we have on our phones where you can zoom in. I love to like start where the river hits the lake and then follow it back. Like where does, like how far back, where can we get to the, where the Mississippi starts or where the Wisconsin River starts? And it's fascinating uh, to see those things, to see that interconnectedness. And uh, just this week, I was looking at the Great Lakes a little bit and just fascinated by how interconnected everything is. And so I went and did a little bit of research and the Great Lakes watershed, which is basically everything that flows into uh, the Great Lakes, it's connected by almost 5,000 tributaries, which are smaller lakes or rivers or streams that all flow into the Great Lakes. And it makes up over 201,000 square miles. And that is mind blowing, like 200,000 square miles. That's craziness. I also read that one drop of water that lands in the far western side of Lake Superior takes 200 years to travel 2,342 miles from Lake Superior all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, which is mind blowing. Uh, it's actually interesting. The, the flow of the lakes is, is very slow and the whole system is very slow compared to a lot of other similar types of systems. Anyways, whatever. Um, and I say that because it's interesting. Lindsay and I were talking with a friend the other night about uh, sermon illustrations that can be distracting because they have nothing to do with the sermon. Well, this really doesn't have a whole lot to do uh, with our text, except that 
my fascination with this immensity of the interconnected system might help us to think about Hebrews in particular and the whole Bible in general, how it is all connected and how it all flows from one source that is God and it all ultimately flows back to him. So if you want a helpful kind of analogy to think about scripture, maybe that's a good one. Just this interconnected flowing of rivers and lakes and streams that all find their source in God and all eventually find their way back to God. Okay, so I'm going to keep this going just a little bit longer. Let's say we put in a boat on the Fox River at the landing right across from campus there. We're floating down the Fox into Lake Winnebago. That's where we kind of had our first little stretch of instruction there in chapter one, how we see that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament revelation. Jesus is superior to angels. Then we found ourselves last week camping out in Lake Winnebago for our first warning. So the lakes are going to be the warnings. And we were warned that we were to not drift away, very fitting metaphor there, and to not neglect the great salvation that was declared to us by Jesus. So that's the first of six warnings. I'm going to add Lake Winnebago to the Great Lakes. So we got six of them, right? We got, we got six warnings that we're going to see throughout Hebrew. And in light of that first warning, not to drift away, not to neglect this salvation, now we find ourselves in the northwest corner of Lake Winnebago, getting back onto the Fox and Nina, and we're going to be journeying through Nina, Appleton, Green Bay, as we get back up into Lake Michigan for our second warning, which is going to come in a couple weeks in chapter three. Okay, I'm done with the river lake stuff now, I promise. But hopefully that is a helpful mental picture of where we're headed and how all of this is interconnected. As we've already mentioned, and we will keep hammering home the point that the central theme of Hebrews is what? Jesus is better, okay? If you don't remember anything over these next like 30 some weeks, Jesus is better, okay? Hopefully you take more than that, but that is the main thing. Jesus is better. So following the first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the author continues the theme from chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, that Jesus is superior to the angels. And this will carry throughout the rest of chapter 2, which we'll see next week as we look at verses 10 through 18. But here he picks up on this flow of argument from chapter 1, again here in 2, 5. Now I've structured this outline that we have this morning according to three questions that are raised as we read through these verses. And the first one occurs in verse five. To whom has God subjected the world to come? Now the question is raised by this negative statement that our author makes in the text. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of whom we are speaking. So then we naturally ask, well, who, to whom was it subjected then if it was not subjected to angels? But before we ask that part, the to whom part, let's consider what is meant by this phrase, the world to come. Now, there is a clue here when he says, the world to come of which we are speaking. He has not been speaking about a future age after the return of Christ, but he has been speaking, if you look back at chapter one, at the beginning of chapter one, of these last days in chapter one, verse two, of which God has spoken to us by his Son, the one who made purification for sin, the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high, having become superior to the angels, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is the age of the Messiah, of which the Old Testament prophets and David the psalmist, who he's about to quote, this is the age that they looked forward to. It is for us the present age. It is the already now, it certainly may include us looking forward to the not yet future age after Jesus' return. And there may be some kind of overlapping of the ages in mind here. But the point here is not so much about the timing, but about what is happening. So God has subjected the world to come, not to angels. So again, our question is, to whom has God subjected the world to come? And he addresses that question by quoting these three verses from Psalm 8. It's a very familiar psalm as David points back to creation. We saw it in our call to worship. David points back to creation and he stands in awe of the fact that the God whose name is majestic in all the earth, the God who placed the moon and the stars in the heavens, David is in awe that he would be mindful of and take notice of us as mere specks on this planet. Though we are lower than the angels in one sense, we are also crowned with glory and honor, and God has placed all things in subjection under our feet. In the original creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, he commanded them to subdue and have dominion over all living creatures. So on a surface level reading, we might say that the answer to our question is humans. To whom has God subjected the world to come? We could say humans. Clearly, that's what Psalm 8 was referring to, to men and women as the crown jewel of God's creation. And that's probably where the minds of the original recipients of this letter would have gone when they first heard this. And that's not wrong at first glance. But let's consider our author's use of the Old Testament thus far. Look at chapter 1. Look at each one of those indented quotes, which are quotes from the Old Testament. And except for verse 7, which is speaking of angels, every single one of those Old Testament references is about who? Jesus, right? They're all pointing to Jesus. Now, there is a considerable debate among scholars over this issue. Surprise, surprise. There's always differing opinions, but there is considerable debate about this here in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, whether this is speaking about us or whether this is speaking about Jesus when Psalm 8 is quoted. I don't think we have to choose in that way. I think it's a more of a both and than an either or. Now, I want to say that in my opinion, I think this is primarily about Jesus, but I think that it has a double application for us, which we'll see in a little bit. But the challenge in this text comes in the second half of verse 8, just after the quote from Psalm 8. The language here is a bit ambiguous, perhaps intentionally. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, which is speaking of God, left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we have that him, his, and him here in this part of verse 8, which clearly refer back to Psalm 8, right? The hymns and the hisses that we see in Psalm 8. Talking about, we see in that first verse of the Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you 
should care for him. Now, clearly in Psalm 8, the Son of Man is talking about humans, right? But even this gets tricky. What was Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels? Son of Man, right? No doubt the author of Hebrews knew this. So I think, again, there, if there's some intentional ambiguity, that might point us to this double application. It's talking about humans, and it's clearly talking about Jesus. So as we think about this, who is this talking about? Who is this, I, when we're talking about this idea of subjection, it's helpful to look at some other places in the New Testament about this idea of subjection in order to answer our question, to whom has God subjected the world to come? So I want to look at one place in Peter and one place in Paul. You can feel free to turn there if you want to. As we're looking at these, you don't have to. The first place is 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. Here, Peter addresses subjection in several different levels of human relationships. The first one is addressed to everyone, to all. He says to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's talking about emperors and governors here. The second level, he's talking about servants being subject to their masters with all respect. The third level is in the home, wives being subject to your own husbands. Now, I would encourage you to go and to read the full context from chapter 2, verse 13, until the end of chapter 3. In each of these cases, it is subjection when the government and when the masters and when the husbands are not obeying God. And it follows up with the reminder to suffer for doing good for righteousness sake, saying it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there is clearly a correlation here for Peter between subjection and suffering. But Peter then ends the chapter by mentioning Jesus' resurrection, saying that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Notice then that Jesus' own subjection to suffering and death in this life is not disconnected from his resurrection, ascension, and session, and reign as angels, authorities, and powers are now subject to him. Jesus subjected him to himself to death, rose in his reigning, and now all things are subject to him. That's in Peter. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, mentions something similar in his prayer of thanksgiving for the believers in Ephesus. Love this prayer. Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know the hope to which they have been called, that they would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now pay attention to this next section as his prayer shifts to speaking of what God the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And see the connection with the language from Psalm 8 and this idea of subjection. Again, Paul prays that they would have this knowledge according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Notice again that already not yet. And he, speaking of God the Father, put all things under his feet. Speaking of Jesus, the Father has put all things under the Son's feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, while there may be some intentional ambiguity here by the author of Hebrews in verses 5 through 8 concerning the question, to whom has God subjected the world to come, there is zero ambiguity as we survey Peter and Paul. God has subjected this world and the world to come to our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 8, the second part of verse 8 there says that he left nothing outside his control. Literally, this reads, there is nothing that is not subject to him. All things are subject to him because Jesus is better. He is the superior master over all things. A truth that is firmly established throughout Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament. But... Now we're going to be introduced by our author to a little wrinkle in his argument in the second half of verse 8. We do not yet see everything at present. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So now we need to ask the question, why? Why do we not yet see everything in subjection to him? I want us to think about the original audience hearing this for the first time and consider the context and the purpose of this letter. There are all these warnings not to drift away, not to turn back from following Jesus and go back to reliance upon the sacrificial system. They need to be exhorted and encouraged. And whether they hear Psalm 8 as referring to all of creation being subject to us as humans or being subject to Christ and under his feet, their present reality does not square with what they are hearing. They might ask, how, how can there be any actual victory, any subjection of the world to Jesus when we look around us and all we see is suffering and division and godlessness? Sound familiar? Maybe you've asked that same question or you've heard someone else ask it. If God is really in control of all things, if he is really sovereign, if he really cares for us, as Psalm 8 says, if he is really on his throne, then why don't we see it more clearly? And that's a valid question. It's one that we shouldn't just dismiss right away. You don't answer that question with, well, God is sovereign and he just said so, so deal with it. It's a valid question. Right? We wrestle with this question in this life. That question and similar questions are going to be raised throughout our journey through Hebrews. And we would do well here to slow down, to consider the reality of life in this fallen world. We should not shy away from, but we should press into these questions of suffering and hardship and how we don't always, what we see here doesn't always match up with what we are told and what we claim to believe. 
Maybe there's a reason that Hebrews 11.1 1 is one of the most popular verses in Hebrews or in the whole New Testament. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it's followed by that whole list of Old Testament saints who faithfully trusted God, walking by faith and not by sight. If you've been around here very long, you've definitely heard us talking about the already and the not yet. I already mentioned the already and the not yet. Jesse, come on. Jesse's shaking his head. Well, the already and the not yet is such a helpful guide for us as we ask some of these hard questions, especially about suffering and about our present experience. These two sentences here in verse eight really help us to consider the already and the not yet of Jesus' rule and reign. Already, everything is subject to him, and there is nothing that is not subject to him. And not yet, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay? But we still haven't answered the question, why? Why do we not yet see everything in subjection to him? It's not because everything is not already in subjection to him. Our author has already established that. We do not see it because the ultimate defeat of all of Christ's enemies is still a future event. Let's turn again to Paul for some help with this. I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 961. And keep a finger there in Hebrews because we're coming back to it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the final resurrection from the dead. And starting in verse 23, he tells us that at Christ's return, those to, who belong to him will be raised. Then he writes, in verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 8, verse 6, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Now, I don't think that Paul wrote Hebrews. I already made that argument several weeks ago. Uh, possible that Hebrews was written before Paul was killed. So maybe someone from this congregation had a chance to talk to Paul or to write to Paul about this. And maybe they asked him, Paul, why don't we yet see everything in subjection to him as the author of our letter is telling us? And I think Paul's answer would have been what he says here in 1 Corinthians 15. Because the end has not yet come. The kingdom has not been fully delivered from the Son to the Father. And though Christ already reigns as king, all of his enemies have not yet been put under his feet, especially the last enemy, death. So what do we see now then if we do not yet see everything in subjection to him? Are we left to just sit here hopelessly and just twiddle our thumbs and wait for Jesus Return? We'll go back to Hebrews chapter 2. 
What do we see? We are told here in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the one who was for a little while made lower than the angels in his humiliation. His humiliation is his coming to earth, being incarnate from his humiliation or from his incarnation to his death. We call that Christ's humiliation. And he is now crowned with glory and honor in his exaltation, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. That is where he is now. He sits enthroned as king at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we saw in Hebrews 1.3. He suffered death on the cross, and by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. If you're curious what that everyone means, keep reading, and we'll be talking about it next week. What we are not saying here is that Jesus' victory on the cross was some partial victory or that his resurrection was not an actual conquering of the grave. It was a resounding victory. It was the already of the already not yet. Jesus' return will put an end to the reality that we don't see, that we don't now see all things in subjection to him. But we do have certainty and assurance because of what Jesus has already done for us. And that's, again, that we, we live in that already not yet tension. This phrase here that Jesus tasted death, this is a Hebrew expression, which means to experience something fully. It means that Jesus fully experienced death for us. Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 8 that if anyone keeps his word, he will never taste death. This is the good news of the gospel. If we believe in Jesus, the perfect son of man and the true Adam, who did not fail to obey his father perfectly as the first Adam and all of his human descendants did, if we believe in him and we keep his word, we will never taste death. Why? Because he tasted death fully and finally in our place as our great high priest, which we're going to be seeing again as we wrap up chapter two next week. Well, so what does this mean for us? Is this all just like information, right, that we're going to just take home and say like, oh, well, I, now I know this stuff and my head is all puffed up. Well, obviously, we need to know these things, right? We need, we need that head knowledge. We need to know and understand these things. And we have to believe these things in our heart. But what are we going to do about it? Head, heart, and hands, right? We don't just say we, we know it and we believe it. We got to do something about it. The emphasis of this text is being subject to King Jesus and seeing King Jesus. And that means here and now, in the already, living our lives as loyal subjects of our king. We do this not only as individuals who subject ourselves to Jesus' reign over our lives, but collectively as well. 
We gather together as a subjected people, a people who have been conquered by Christ the King and brought under the sovereign rule of the kingdom of God. This is a picture of that right here. A gathered and called out people who proclaim that we belong to another kingdom. That what the world has to offer us in terms of fame and fortune pales in comparison to the riches of being subject to a perfectly holy and gracious Savior. And though we don't see him now with our physical eyes, we do see him with the eyes of faith. When we pray, when we spend time in God's word, when we, to, when we gather together here in the house of the Lord to worship our great triune God, our eyes are opened and we get a glimpse of the greater reality of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And though while we are out there in the world, our vision is hazy and we are tempted to drift away, the reminder is to stay closely tied to Jesus so that we don't drift away. Brothers and sisters, look to him. The whole world owes him their allegiance. Let us show them by our lives what it looks like to be subject to Jesus and to see him. Let us pray. Well, as we think about this tension that we face in this life, seeing and yet not seeing fully, being subject to Christ and his kingdom, yet not fully seeing that kingdom manifest here on earth. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. God, give us the faith to see more clearly to believe more fully, God, to trust you more, to be subject to you, to live our lives in this world in such a way that those around us would, would see and would, would see that there's something different, that that subjection to you and your kingdom would be manifestly lived out in a way that causes people to take notice and that we would have opportunities to profess Christ, to speak of Christ's kingdom, and to call others to be reconciled to you through Christ, reminding them that it is not by their own works that they come into the kingdom, but it is by grace through faith that we can be justified in your sight, made right with you by the blood of your son. God, help us to remember the gospel to live out the gospel, and to make the gospel clearly seen in the world around us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.